Hello, everyone. Welcome to Palladium Magazine's Digital Salon on NASA and Mars with Robert Zubrin. I'm Wolf Tyvee, Editor-in-Chief of Palladium. We're also joined by Ash Milton, Managing Editor of Palladium. How's it going, hey guys? Ash? Good to be here. Our special guest today is uh, Robert Zubrin, like I said. Robert is known for his advocacy of Mars exploration and colonization, especially the Mars Direct Plan. Uh, welcome, Robert. Thanks for inviting me. Great. Great to have you. So these salons are an opportunity to get together for interesting conversations virtually, since we can't really meet for in-person events anymore. Um, this conversation is being recorded. It will be published uh, as sort of like a podcast. The salon will run about 90 minutes. First half hour will be a discussion between Robert, Ash, and myself. And then we'll open it up to moderated audience Q&A. So please start thinking about questions you might have for Robert or, or questions that come up during the discussion. Uh, and be sure to put those in the Q&A future on Zoom uh, rather than the chat itself. Yeah. It's much easier for the us. The button is it. right at the bottom on the bar by chat and everything else. Please do not mix them up because we will not be getting questions in the chat to the speaker. Great. So, Robert, if you could just give us a, a brief introduction to yourself and your work as you're seeing it these days. Uh, you know, we've, we've all heard of Mars Direct and, and uh, of, of your general work with Mars colonization and so on, but um, I'd love to get your view on, on what it is you do and what you have been doing. Well, uh, I do a number of things. First of all, uh, you know, for a living, I'm, I'm a working engineer. I have a small... Uh, aerospace R&D company called Pioneer Astronautics, and we do a lot of research and development on contract for NASA. We develop uh, a number of new technologies, uh, most particularly in the areas of um, what you might call planetary uh, resource utilization or resource creation, since it's not a resource until you develop the technology that can use it. Right. Um, the uh, I'm also the author of number of books, uh, primarily books on space exploration, like The Case for Mars, and the recent book, The Case for Space. Um, and I, I lead an organization called the Mars Society, uh, whose mission is to promote the human uh, exploration and ultimately settlement to Mars by both public and private means. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're all over the world. Uh, and we're going to have an international conference this year uh, virtually. It's going to be an international teleconvention, and you can find out about that at uh, marssociety.org. Great, we'll definitely check that out. Cool. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say, you know, I first came across your work, Robert, I think through the New Atlantis and your writing there. Um, I definitely encourage people to check it out. Uh, I, I think that for people who maybe have read a bit about these issues but are not specialists, it's an extremely good introduction to some of the distinctions here because, you know, the, there's a lot of aesthetic hype, I think, around these topics, it can be difficult to discern what has substance versus what is just kind of baggage left over from an earlier era of hype that hasn't really managed to see through results. And uh, your work in particular seems to focus quite a lot on the idea of mission orientation, the idea of actually achieving results. Um, maybe to start the discussion, you could kind of elaborate a bit on your analysis of NASA right now and why it seems to, you know, why we seem to have fallen globally short on these goals that we had 50 years ago when our grandparents were around. Yeah. Or when I was around. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Look, in the sixties, 
uh, NASA's human spaceflight program, Apollo, was purpose-driven, okay? Uh, its purpose wasn't scientific, it was geostrategic, but it was definitely purpose-driven. Uh, it had a definite goal, uh, and we were trying to achieve that goal as quickly and as efficiently as, as possible. We were willing to take risks to achieve that goal. We were willing to do whatever it took to achieve that goal. Mm -hmm. uh, but following the uh, end of the Apollo program, you had this large uh, technical organization with many contractors uh, attached to it as well. And, um, you know, and what happened to it was what happens to a lot of organizations that whether you're talking about trade unions or political parties that are formed to achieve a certain cause after a certain amount of time, whether they achieve the cause or not, um, the organization no longer is about the cause. It's about the organization. Right. Um, it, it, and um, so NASA instead, uh, not NASA as a whole, but the human spaceflight program of NASA um, became not so much a purpose-driven organization as a vendor-driven organization. It would not spend money to do things. It would do things in order to spend money. Um, now, and so it drifted. And, um, you know, in 1989, um, when the first President Bush, uh, on the 20th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing, got up on the steps of the Air and Space Museum with Armstrong and Algernon and Collins, the Apollo 11 crew, and said, this is the 20th anniversary. That's what we're all about. America is a pioneer spirit. You know, so I'm committing the country to go back to the moon, on to Mars, this time to stay. NASA, instead of going off and, and, and developing the most efficient plan for how to do it, went off to and develop the least efficient plan for how to do it with a 30-year timeline. And it was so complex that people, and, and there were many people in NASA in 1989 who had been in during Apollo, it's only 20 years uh, right. apart, um, actually said, if, if we could put a man on the moon, why can't we put a man on the moon? Um, because the bureaucracy was mandating that the moon program, let alone the Mars program, be used as a kind of a Christmas tree on which to hang all the ornaments, uh, that is to uh, come up with the most complex plan in order to make all their pet programs mission critical, which is the exact opposite of the correct way to do engineering. Right. And, um, and this is also um, uh, afflicting um, the um, Artemis program, which is the Trump administration's uh, alleged program to go back to the moon, uh, mm. coming up with a very complex plan. So before we go to the moon, we have to build a lunar orbiting space station. Why? We didn't need it the last time. Uh, and there just was to clarify, people, this, is the, this is the lunar gateway, correct? Yeah, or toll booth, as we call it. Um, <laughs> and the, uh, uh, you know, during Apollo, there were people who said, before you go to the moon, you have to build a space station in orbit around the Earth. They were pushed out of the way. Well, that was sort of that was sort of von Braun's original idea, right? It's like the first thing is low cost access to space. Then you have your outposts in low Earth orbit, then on to the the Moon and Mars. But but basically, yeah. with with the very tight kind of focus on the goal of landing on the Moon, uh, all that stuff, I guess they realized was was not quite necessary to that that focused goal. Well, well, yeah. Well, there's actually a very interesting story about um, a meeting that took place at the Marshall Space Flight Center around 1963, and at this time, um, the Johnny Hubble uh, faction, which was pushing lunar orbit rendezvous, was the way to do 
Apollo. Initially, they had, people thought they were whack jobs, but by now they were a strong faction, but they had not yet prevailed. And um, they were in competition with three other major factions on how you might accomplish the moon mission. One was the space station faction. So before you go to the moon, you got to have a space station. Right. And then there was the Saturn nine people who, before you go to the moon, you have to have a Saturn nine. Saturn five is not good enough. It's too small. Got to have a Saturn nine. And the, the third was the nuclear rocket people. Got to have nuclear rockets. You can't go to the moon. Okay. So they're having this big food fight over there. And, um, you know, with all these people basically saying, you can't do your program until you do my program. And, um, and then at a certain point, somebody said, look, do we really want to go to the moon or don't we? And there was dead silence in the room for about 30 seconds. And then they all looked around and said, it's got to be lunar orbit rendezvous. It's the only way. So it was that tight schedule and the imperative of we are going to do this to astound the world with what three people can do. Um, you know, this is important. Uh, that's what pushed all these other programs out of the way. Because you're always going to have all sorts of people around saying you can't do your program until you do my program, and um, and that's what you have now. And uh, so, you know, the 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 NASA people are kind of wrestling with this. They have some pressure from some people in the Trump administration who are actually serious about wanting to get to the moon by 2024, but it's not enough. I mean, it's not like it was with uh, Kennedy and Johnson. This is this is not that level of priority. And so uh, I, I doubt very much they're mm. going to make it to the moon by 2024. Right. Well, so I, they I don't think... have the level of commitment. Now, mm. so that's the difference between a purpose-driven program and a vendor-driven program. Now, it has to be said that there are parts of NASA that have remained purpose-driven, most notably the science program, which includes the space astronomy program and the robotic planetary missions, like the rovers to Mars, Cassini to Saturn, this kind of stuff. Those people remain purpose-driven. And in consequence, they've accomplished a great deal. The accomplishments of the Hubble Space Telescope and the Mars rovers and the Voyager, these are epic. People are going to read about this 500 years from now as some of the great accomplishments of our time. The accomplishment of shuttle mission number 74? No. Okay. The, um, but that, yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the issue is having a purpose-driven space program. Now, the when I was, um, sorry, if I can just jump in here, when I was reading your work on this concept of purpose-driven, um, I, I think this might be useful for our listeners when they're thinking about this. You kind of have a few uh, bullet points, you know, this, the definition of a purpose-driven program, uh, which I found useful. The goal has to be definite. It has to be proximate. Uh, you know, technology, the means have to be oriented toward the end. It has to be efficient. And I thought the most interesting point, actually, the goal needs to be rationally chosen to accomplish the most we can. I, I thought, you know, as you're talking here, right, the, the moon landing goal was, as you're saying, geostrategic. This was not like a pure engineering goal. Um, and I, I, I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on this, because it seems like to really make that work, to mobilize governments and societies even to achieve this kind of goal, you kind of have to be thinking like, on a, a much broader and more dramatic level than just wanting to do an engineering program. Well, you do. Uh, and once again, um, you know, in the 60s, Apollo, uh, it was geostrategic, but it was real. And, you know, 
everybody who was around then has a story of where they were when we landed on the moon. Okay, it's mm -hmm. like perhaps you can remember where you were at 9-11 or so. Um, but, you know, where I was when we landed on the moon, Leningrad, okay. Um, I was, uh, as a kid, I was a chess wizard. And so, um, anyway, the, if you wanted to play serious chess at that time, you had to be able to read the Soviet chess text. And I was there to learn Russian. Anyway, all the Russians I knew came up to Maladets, which is like, that a boy. Uh, the, the leaders may have been having kittens, but for the average Russian, and Russians were really into space, okay, there's reason for that, but um, we had excelled in a sport that they could appreciate, and, um, and in a way that was not harmful to them, it was not aggressive against them, it wasn't, um, didn't it, it, it excite their paranoia, it excited their admiration, and um, so it, it did, and it certainly did much more to help the U.S. in the Cold War than our deployments in Vietnam at, at that time, which were far right. more expensive in both treasure and in life. Um, and, uh, but in this case, um, there are some geostrategic goals that could be pursued uh, that, that are perforce being pursued if you're simply showing that America does still remain the world's leader and, and technology and accomplishments that we're still the people who do incredible things. You know, I mean, ever since Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Edison and the Wright right. brother, you know, we've been these people, who, you know, this is one of the more popular stereotypes of Americans. Uh, mm. There's a number of stereotypes, but this is one of the, 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 the more uh, beneficial. Ones. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And positive, that's the word. Um, but, you know, we're talking about opening up the human future. Uh, you know, and, and this is why I believe the goal's got to be Mars. Mm. Okay. It sounds like you're not uh, interested in a moon return at all, really. Well, there, there are some points of merit to a moon return, and it certainly beats a program that has no goal at all, which is what we've had between the moon landing and recently. Um, but it's, it's not the best goal. It's the second best program. Uh, the best program is humans to Mars. Mm. Uh, because We've already proven that we can go to the moon. We did it 50 years ago, okay? Um, the, the, uh, and it, it no longer has, you know, at that time, the metaphor, reaching for the moon, meant doing the impossible. Right. Okay? And it yeah, no it, longer means that. Okay? Repeating old glories isn't really, yeah. it doesn't have the same effect. You want no, to actually get to the interplanetary accomplishment level that right. is alluded but, us so and, far. and furthermore, I mean, look, there are three reasons to take on Mars. Okay. One is scientific. Uh, Mars is definitely where the real science is here. Mars is a planet, was a once warm and wet planet, could have supported development of life, uh, did it. Uh, you know, is life a general phenomenon in the universe that occurs wherever it has a reasonably decent planet to develop on? In that case, life's everywhere because we now know from the Kepler mission that planets are everywhere. Um, or is it just a one in a trillion shot and we just happen to have won the lottery? Okay. Um, you know, the nature of the universe, this is really something. Okay. Now, second is, is the challenge. Um, you know, uh, the best, most important benefit we got out of Apollo weren't the technical spinoffs that NASA, uh, likes to cite the Teflon or even solar energy, which was, 
a spinoff of the space program at that time. And right. that's a pretty important thing. Um, it's the intellectual capital. Um, that is, we doubled the number of science graduates in, in the United States in the 60s during Apollo. And you can look at the graph and it takes off really right at Kennedy's speech and then it stops going up as soon as the program was shut down. Uh, yeah. It just flattens. Uh, and the, and it's because youth loves adventure and the Apollo program made science the great adventure. And if right. we had a humans to Mars program today, we would not only get millions of young boy scientists, which is what you got then, you'd get millions of, of boys and girls, scientists, engineers, technological entrepreneurs, uh, uh, inventors, doctors, medical researchers. These are the kinds of people that move society forward. This is the intellectual capital. You know, mm -hmm. who were the 40-year-old, you know, technological entrepreneurs that made Silicon Valley in the 1990s? They were the 12-year-old little boy mad scientists making robots and rocket fuel in the basement in the 1960s. Right. And, um, and I and, know and those people because I was one of those people. <laughs> right. And that's, and that's a much more real sort of inspiration than uh, sort of all the fake ways you could imagine increasing the number of science graduates and so on. Like, like there's always programs thrown around to sort of get more people inspired into science, but it's always some, some sort of fake program. Whereas right. actually going and doing something real and inspiring is, is not just for, for the people involved in that program who get the experience and the expertise, but for everyone watching, it, it's a much more like a, a real exposure to, to the possibilities. Right. And then there's the third reason to go to Mars. I said mention the science, the challenge, and the third is for the future. Okay. Because Mars is the closest planet that has all the materials to support life and therefore technological civilization. And if we can go there and learn how to turn those materials into resources, then Mars becomes a place we can settle. Uh, Mars becomes a place where new branches of human civilization can be born. And, right. uh, and it opens up an, an open human future, which has significance, by the way, not just for that future. It has significance for the present because the way we conceive of the future affects what's going to happen in the present. This is really important. And, and this is something that people do not get, but they need to get it. Okay. Which is this, you know, people talk about the threat to humanity today climate change, resource exhaustion. Some people talk about asteroid impacts. Well, okay, these all have a certain amount of validity, but in fact, none of them were the causes of the major disasters uh, uh, that humanity experienced in the 20th century. Right. Okay, the major, and, and we had some real doozies, and none of them were caused by climate change or resource exhaustion or asteroids. They were all caused by something else entirely, which was bad ideas. And in particular, one bad idea in a multitude of forms, which is there isn't enough for everybody. That is the idea that underlied fundamentally both world wars, the Holocaust, the Holodomor, uh, and any numbers of other human-caused catastrophes that you could name, and which threatens us with catastrophe today. Mm -hmm. I, I can tell you for a fact, because I've spoken with them, that there are people in the American national security establishment who believe that war with China is inevitable because if they develop fully so that they all have cars just like us, there's not going to be enough oil in the world. And, and you can bet that they have opposite numbers of, of, of the same sort in China who look at us from the opposite side of the chessboard and think essentially the same thing. Okay. And if, if that kind of thinking is allowed to prevail, there will be war and it will be far more destructive 
than World War II because we've got much yeah, more powerful weapons. We've got weapons. bigger guns now. Yeah, we sure do. And the, um, but it's a false view, okay? Look, as the world's population has gone up, the standard of living has gone up, not down. How's that? If there's only so much to go around, it should go down, like Malthus says. Yeah, something I, want, something I wanted to ask you about here is, um, you know, it, it's one thing when one is able to like give, create this dramatic ideal or picture, um, but then you also need uh, to build the human and like institutional infrastructure to carry it out. Um, and there, there's a way in which like our inability to do this now, you know, I think for a lot of people, when we have these discussions, right? Like, are we in a declining society or something like this? Um, this is one of those things that is there. You know, I, my, my own uh, dad was, you know, he's in his 60s now. He was uh, a young kid when all this happened. And it's always struck me that, you know, if, if I have kids, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be living in a world where they can say, ah, in our grandfather's day, people walked on the moon. And th that is an amazing, like, that to me is a horrific conception. But just to have the idea of that isn't enough. And you, uh, Robert, have talked about, you know, the causes people give for why um, the human spaceflight programs have declined. And, you know, people say there's not enough money or maybe democracies aren't able to do long-term projects. And you, you've kind of given some credence, but I think you reject them as total explanations. I, I'd like to hear you elaborate well, a bit on this. Well, I, I certainly reject them as explanations. Um, and, but, but I do want to finish the point I was working on mm. before, sure. which is refuting this idea that there isn't enough to go around. The issue is not that we're going to get oil from Mars or anything like that. The issue is that what we're going to show is that it's not true that there is only so much to go around because the earth comes with an infinite sky and it's wide open. And if we work together, right. okay, it, it, the fundamental condition of humanity is not one of nations in a struggle for existence over limited resources, but of a bumptious family of nations, each capable of making various sorts of contributions to the general project of expanding the total human prospect. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, in, in, to get to your question, look, okay, uh, without a clear goal, NASA deteriorated. And it also has to be said that um, uh, the quality of the political class has deteriorated considerably since the 1960s right. uh, in, in this country. Um, you know, <laughs> prominent examples holding press conferences every day. Uh, the, uh, but, um, and, but this is also true internationally. Uh, I mean, you can compare uh, Trump to JFK, you can compare Macron to Charles de Gaulle or or, 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 or Boris Johnson to Winston Churchill, the, 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 the uh, you know, they all don't compare, okay? And the generation that got us to the moon, that is the political generation, uh, in many cases were the same people or the younger brothers of those who won World War II. And mm. we got to the moon, and the reason why Kennedy was able to get up in 1961 and say, we're gonna put a man on the moon in eight years, wasn't because they knew how to get to the moon in eight years. They didn't have a clue. What they knew, though, was that this is America. We can do anything. Okay. Mm -hmm. We not only won the war, we won the peace. We, we not only defeated Germany and Japan, we rebuilt them in a way that they had better than they had ever been before. And the people there, you know, you know, in Japan, they're playing baseball and, and they call themselves MacArthur's children and, and, and the, you know, and, and, and this kind of thing. So we know we can do it. And, and we did it. And, 
the, the, so there's been this deterioration. Now, precisely because of that um, vacuum of leadership, there's been a new leadership has stepped forward from a different quarter and that's from the private quarter. So now you have this entrepreneurial space revolution, which is being spearheaded by SpaceX, although it is not limited to SpaceX by any stretch. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but what Musk has done is he's proven that it's possible for a well-led entrepreneurial team to do things that was previously thought that only the governments of superpowers could do. And not only that, do it in one third the time and one tenth the cost and even do things they had deemed impossible altogether. And landing the rockets. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and, and so this happening and, 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 and he's being emulated. Okay. He's being, there's going to be a Chinese SpaceX. You can count on it. And, uh, and, and, you know, there's now a New Zealand company has reached orbit. New Zealand doesn't even have a space program. Okay. But New Zealand has reached orbit through private enterprise. And by the way, led by people who are not billionaires like Elon Musk, but just working engineers, people with middle-class means who've managed to mobilize investment. And this has had effects outside the, the space program because there's now fusion power startups getting funded. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, because, you know, fusion has been one of these things like cheap space launch. Oh, that will always be in the future. It's always going to be in the future. But then people looked at Musk and this, those rockets landing, and they said, huh, maybe the problem with fusion is the same thing. Maybe the problem is not technical. Maybe it's institutional. And so now you have fusion power startups getting serious money. Uh, try Alpha Energy in California, $500 million. That's more than the U.S. fusion budget. Um, and these people are not looking at 30-year timelines. They've got investors. They're looking at five-year timelines uh, you know, to try to make something happen. And it's going to happen. Yeah. So when um, we look at that previous generation, you know, we could call them maybe the generation of MacArthur, Eisenhower, and Kennedy or something like this. Um, it seems like uh, you're right. There was this coordination, this risk tolerance that they had, this understanding of how to build mission-oriented institutions. For some reason, there was a succession failure, it seems like. And, you know, at Palladium, one of our unifying questions is, how do we build a better political class? But even if one solves that problem, you kind of have to now ask, how do you create mechanisms for succession? And I'm interested, Robert, you know, if you could sit down people like Musk, these entrepreneurs you're discussing and say, you know, when you built the things you want to build, here's how you can avoid the succession failure of this previous generation. Do you have any theories there as to how that can be done? That's a tough one. How to convince Musk to create a successor. Um, I haven't thought that one through at all. Uh, That's hard. Uh, I, I think it's most likely that he will uh, create successors not through tutelage and mentoring, but through example. Um, mm. Frankly, that that's yeah. how he's doing. Can you elaborate so, on that? What's the distinction you're drawing? Well, I know Musk, um, and I just don't see him as he's not taking apprentices. You don't think. the pedagogical type, right? I, in, in that sense, but. But the example that he is setting, mm-hmm. there's, he's going to teach through example, okay, uh, uh, and not through you know, uh, uh, paternal mentoring, but through example. People are going to look at him. They're going to see what he did right. They're going to see what he did wrong. Uh, 
you know, and, and some of them, okay, because it's just human nature, people are going to say, you know, you know, uh, if he can do it, I can do it, um, you know, and, 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 mm. and some yeah. of them will be right. And the, 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 he's proving it can be done. It's like the secret of the atom bomb. You know what the secret of the atom bomb was? Okay, that it was possible. Uh, as soon as they showed it was possible, it was the dead certainty that others would mobilize the resources necessary to do it. Um, and, you know, and, and he's shown that this is possible. So he, Musk is not the richest man in the world. There are plenty of people out there that have much more material resources than he has, as rich as he is. Um, and um, say, if he can do it, we can do it. Um, You've referred to Musk before as a, a Greek hero. I was wondering if you could explain that. And then also, are those born or made or both? Uh, well, I don't know if they're born or made. I have to think about that for a minute. But, but in terms of what I meant was, um, you know, people sometimes ask me what I think his motivation is. And um, it's not money. Uh, he likes money. Everybody likes money. Uh, he finds money useful. But the money is not his motivation at all. Uh, he's after uh, Kleos, um, which is um, what Homer's heroes were after, which is eternal glory for doing great deeds. Um, mm -hmm. It, you know, uh, he, he he's not after cheap fame of the Harris, uh, Paris Hilton variety. He wants fame for doing great deeds. Okay, and he's not just interested in doing great deeds. He wants the credit. Absolutely. Okay. And, you know, the, 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 the limitations of this outlook uh, sometimes uh, have a darker side to it. For instance, uh, uh, people saw um, the unpleasant way he reacted when someone else managed to save the boys in Thailand. Um, but nevertheless, he wanted to save those boys in Thailand. Okay. And right now he wants to do something about the coronavirus. And he wants to do something about uh, global warming. And he wants to do something about getting humanity to space. If, if you went to Musk and you said, look, Elon, I got this great deal. It's this land in St. Croix. We could put up a casino and a strip joint. And the, the, the deal, it's a lock. You're going to make millions of dollars and throw you out of his office. Okay. He would, you know, you will go to him with a money-making proposition that does not have a quality of greatness to it, and in this case, greatness judged by a humanist point of view. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, you know, Musk is not a nice person, but he is definitely a humanist. That is his his criteria for things that are worth doing is extremely humanistic, and uh, so. Yeah. My impression yeah, is that there's like but, a human know, and an inhuman Cleos, and so this, that this gets... unique Cleos subjected to human ends. This yes. gets into the question of like, you know, given outside of kind of the, the existential geo, geostrategic kind of uh, motivational environment, you need some human energy, some human institution that is creating that, that sort of intense drive to achieve, to be able to motivate something like going to Mars. And, you know, in our case, it's, it's Musk in the 60s, it was this, you know, not just it was, you know, Von Braun and those guys, they had that, that drive, but they also had the geostrategic need. And 
And this is like the, the interesting question for me is like, okay, if we're going to go to Mars, it does seem like a great idea, but you need someone who's going to be the champion of that idea. Or you need at well, least some, some institution that's going to be, have, have enough influence and enough sort of intensity of that goal to be able to, uh, you know, discipline, I guess, the, the, the efforts um, towards that end. Okay, well, okay, look, you know, Victor Hugo mm -hmm. once said, nothing can stop an idea whose time has come. Right. And the reason why that is true is if the idea has messengers, is that the idea with its messengers, which it has recruited, is able to recruit further forces to its banners that are capable of making it prevail. Now, I had a role in this, okay? You know, I wrote this book called The Case for Mars, and Musk read this book. And then he um, came to a Mars Society event in the Bay Area in 2001. And he joined our board and he gave some money and he was with us for a while. And at a certain point he said to me, look, you know, I'm not the kind of person that wants to be part of someone else's uh, deal. I got to, you know, lead my own uh, initiative, you know, one lion on a hill, all that kind of thing. And, and so he went off and, and he did SpaceX. But the idea whose time has come, this is what has recruited Musk in a different form. I was not involved with it in that case. It recruited Bezos. He was recruited more by the ideas of Gerard O'Neill yeah. um, as mm -hmm. relayed to him by Peter Diamandis and some other people and, and O'Neill himself, actually. Uh, and the... Um, of the space colonies, this kind of thing. Um, yeah, the O'Neill cylinders, the high frontier. Right, exactly. Idea. Um, but, you know, Bezos is not doing Blue Origin to make money. That's ridiculous. He's not making right. any money with Blue Origin. Musk will probably make money with SpaceX, because Musk is like really good at making money. But he could make a lot more money doing things that were are much less counterintuitive as business propositions <laughs> than, right. than, a, than a rocket company. Um, the, the um, you know, uh, it, it's the idea, and, and I think this is an idea whose time has come, and, and this is why I think we're going to win, actually, in, in that, uh, you know, with Kennedy, even, um, in the 50s, uh, Von Braun got together with Walt Disney, and they put together this, this movie, uh, Destination Moon, and some other film projects along those lines. And, and they put this out there. So this was out there in the 50s. And um, so that Kennedy, when he was confronted with a need to do something about uh, the Cold War, losing the Cold War propaganda war, this idea came to mind. There were other things. I mean, they could have sent the Marines to Cuba okay, to get rid of Castro, not leaving it up to a bunch of Cuban exiles who didn't know how to fight and send the Marines, do the job. Um, the, the, no, so this is orthogonal to that. So putting that idea out there, that is what made Apollo possible. Apollo occurred during the Cold War. It was not caused by the Cold War. Mm. It, it was caused by the idea that had been generated, well, even earlier than von Braun, people like uh, Oberth and Goddard, and, mm -hmm. um, science fiction writers, um, of this idea of humanity expanding into space. In that case, von Braun and Disney were the, the messengers, and Kennedy picked it up, and 
so the idea took advantage of, as it were, energies that were available during the Cold War to support projects. You know, during the Cold War, if you had any project, whether it's improving uh, teachers' salaries or, or anything, you would say, this is to help win the Cold War. Right. Okay. Um, and so here, we want to go to the moon. Same thing. Well, this will yeah. help with the cold. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm just looking at the time here as well. I think we should start uh, getting to some of the Q and A. Um, sure. Wolf, you have those on your end, I believe. Yeah. Um, so, so Brian Hartung asks an interesting question, uh, which is a question I also wanted to ask, which was right around the, the shutdown of the Apollo program, which is, sort of 1972, 1973 was kind of the end of it all. Um, it wasn't just the Apollo program. There was a larger kind of shift in, in how America seemed to think about achievement and, and organization of potentials and, and social organization and everything. There was, a, there was quite a large shift in, in 1973. This is something that's puzzled us for some time. Every time you look at a graph of any kind of achievement, there's always some big inflection point right around then. And, and this also relates to the question of the successors um, who, the successors of that generation that, you know, won the war and took us to the moon and so on, um, and, and their particular succession failure. So it would be interesting to get kind of your perspective, you know, with your inside view and all this stuff that you've studied and, and been involved in. What, what happened in, in the politics and the organizations and, and the people retiring and being replaced and so on? around that time that that caused that sort of change in consciousness from that goal-driven well, purposeful organization to the the uh, less purposeful organization? That's a very easy question to answer. Uh, we lost the Vietnam War. Um, it was Vietnam. Vietnam took the wind out of our sails. Um, Vietnam undermined, is the right word, this idea that we could do anything. Right. Uh, you know, because uh, here it was, I mean, here, you know, beating Nazi Germany, and which had, you know, at the time we entered the war, they had all of continental Europe under their control out to the gates of Moscow. Uh, and we brought down that Third Reich and, and, and so forth and, 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 and the Japanese Empire. And then here's this dinky little Vietnam and we couldn't even win. And, the, 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 and, and not only that, uh, the way the war was fought undermined our concept of who we were, of, of, right. of the, that we were the good guys, that we, uh, you know, watching on television American troops go into Vietnamese villages and pull out their bayonets and stab all the pigs so they'd have no food to eat. What the hell is going on here? Uh, and um, so, uh, you know, Robert McNamara can take a lot of credit for destroying uh, uh, the, the the American century, um, uh, and 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 you know our, our own sense of, of our pe uh, uh, you know that we actually stood for something that was, you know, and and you can see this now uh, in in the failure of the Bush administration. They did not have the moral certainty when they went into Afghanistan and Iraq that MacArthur had when he went into Japan, and he was there saying, "Okay, here's the new rules." Okay, it's going to be democracy. Yeah. Women are going to have rights. It's going to be trade unions uh, and, and, and all this stuff that was not there before. This is how it's going to be. Instead, we go to Afghanistan. We get a bunch of warlords and terrorists. And we sit them around the table. So what kind of government do you think you ought to have? 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's true. Yeah, yeah they, they didn't go in with a plan. Uh, no. Uh, you know, we no longer had this this certainty that 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 that, that we actually um, represented something that 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 was really true and good and and you know the way the truth and the light and the 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 um so uh, mm. yeah so i would say that that this this notion of of decline um and this acceptance of okay well, decline of the rest west was written by a german in the 1920s okay <laughs> and once again spengler okay so we had our own spenglers uh and e e even if uh, well uh so you start getting books like the population bomb and the limits to growth and, 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 and all the famine 1975 and, and, mm. and all this stuff of, 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 we have now entered the age of limits. We used to think everything was possible. Um, the, the, now there's the, only endings. Endings. Right. We're yeah. So, so we lost, we, we lost the ideal. So first of all, like the confidence in ourselves and the ideal of, of sort of continued growth and capability and achievement and, and somehow became kind of inward looking and, and afraid of that stuff. Right. Yeah. I think there's a good follow-up question here, actually. Um, so Ryan asks, I was reading Charles Fishman's One Giant Leap. Uh, I assume you're probably familiar with that book, Robert. One of the interesting points in it was how the Apollo program was vital for economic development in the United States by disciplining manufacturing and encouraging domestic production. Does the uh, national development angle seem an effective way of pitching the case for Mars? So I guess, you know, right now there's uh, a lot of discussions about, you know, on, on maybe the political left is the Green New Deal. On the right, there's kind of industrial policy discussions, but there seems to be this hunger uh, especially now during this pandemic for the idea of let's rebuild strategic, you know, supply lines, let's rebuild industry manufacturing um, and, and kind of create an economy that's producing real things again in North America. Uh, so do you think that there, there's an opportunity here to pitch the case for Mars in this context? Well, uh, yeah. Uh, although, uh, well, certainly the phenomena that you just described of the government mobilizing American industry and turning, uh, that certainly was the case in World War II, uh, where we went from a depression to an economy that was growing at rates of 20% a year. Um, in Apollo, uh, less so. Uh, Apollo, of course, was a much smaller affair than the war effort in World War II. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, certainly there were elements of that. I, I think if we did have an industrial mobilization to solve the problems of humans to Mars, which by the way, would be smaller than Apollo because the challenges of going to Mars today are significantly less than those that we face during, to get to the moon. Mm. We, we uh, already we, have 85% of the technology needed to go to Mars with 1961 going to the moon. I mean, we didn't even yeah. know if people could eat in space. You've mentioned uh, that even now the, the funding for NASA correcting for inflation is actually higher than in its first uh, years, correct? Uh, yeah, although it, it's close to the same. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's not much higher. Uh, hmm. it, it, in my New Atlantis article, I go through the numbers on that to show that the argument that the money isn't there is false. There's actually mm -hmm. about the same amount of money, a few percent more. Um, the, the, the um, that is in the past 20 years, 
in real inflation adjusted dollars, NASA has spent a little more than it did in its first 20 years from 58 to 78, when we went from no space program to and through the moon landing and Skylab and Voyager to Jupiter. Um, but because, uh, now if you look at the last 20 years, you will see a robotic space program whose accomplishments are, are comparable to the robotic space program of that time, which were significant, but a human spaceflight program of, of, of in no way comparable in its accomplishments because they had a goal and the current program doesn't. Um, Interesting. Um, but, uh, but sure, um, it, it's certainly the case that a humans to Mars program would help uh, industrial growth uh, and technological development. But actually, the biggest crisis that we're facing right now in this country is in education. And there's all these STEM programs. And, uh, and well, some of those have some merit. Uh, what has no merit at all are all these programs to try to improve education through increased amounts of standardized testing that right. blows my mind uh, as, as totally counterproductive. Um, but, uh, but, you know, a bold space program would make science the great adventure and we get millions of young scientists that way. Yeah, it could, it could organize, organize people's thoughts about what to do and, and organize what we're actually doing around the accomplishment of functional goals. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I can totally see that. Mm. So uh, speaking of, of the robotic space program, Stephen Pimentel asks, um, why human exploration of Mars as opposed to, say, scaled up robotic exploration of Mars? Now, I imagine there's factors there in terms of robots are not yet quite as capable of, as humans. We're also more interested in humans, perhaps. But I, I'm curious to hear your view on uh, why Look, like robots versus humans on Mars. There isn't a robot in the world today that you could send to the store to buy you a bag of carrots, uh, right. let alone explore a planet. Um, the, 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 uh, no, uh, and Stephen Squires, who is, the, um, is a field geologist himself, uh, but is also the project scientist on the Mars Exploration Rover mission, the Spirit and Opportunity, Right. He compared to what Spirit and Opportunity could do on Mars to what he could do if he was there himself with a rock hammer. Uh, and he, he basically said they're about one one thousandth as effective as yeah. a working field geologist. And, and that's even the things that they can do. Okay. Um, you know, the Mars Society leads um, a program called the Mars Desert Research Station, which we have in the desert in Utah. And um, I was there in the first crew that we had. And in our first motorized uh, EVA, that is, we go out and mock spacesuits and explore the surrounding terrain, uh, traveled around four kilometers to the north of the station. And then we saw this hill that we could climb and get a view. We climbed this little hill and got a view. And we saw this interesting little box canyon. And we figured that would be a place to go. And we went over there. And there's about a two meter climb down into the canyon, two meter drop. And we walk around in the canyon and there, after going through a lot of false finds, I found this um, rock, which I showed to Jen Hellman, a geologist who was on the EVA. And she looked at it and said, this looks to me, this is bone, this is, this is fossil. Um, we took it back to the half, she thin sectioned it, it was indeed dinosaur bone. 
And we reported that to the Bureau of Land Management. And a couple of years later, uh, scientists from the Burpee Museum in um, Illinois contacted the BLM and said, anybody over there find some dinosaur fossils? Said, yeah, these Mars people found some stuff at these GPS coordinates. And they went there, they dug the place out. It's the largest find of dinosaur fossils in North America in 50 years. And the, uh, it's, it's, more, it's as significant as Dinosaur National Monument. No robotic rover would ever have found it. No robotic rover would have even found the canyon and certainly couldn't have gotten into the canyon because it was a two meter drop. And right. then walking around the canyon, okay, you know, you're turning your head from left to right, you're taking the equivalent of millions of high resolution pictures with your eyes. You see something that looks interesting, you give it a double take, no, forget it. You continue, you see something interesting enough to go over there and pick it up, you dust it off, no, it's nothing. Okay, you continue, finally you pick one up, dust it off, hey, this is interesting. Jen, have a look at this. So let's take this one back to the Habal Fin section. Okay, you report it, and then they come and dig it out. This is all way beyond the ability of robotic rovers. And right. you, you could land, you know, I'm here in Colorado. This is dinosaur heavens. You know, all, all the dinosaurs weren't here to die. And the, um, no, I mean, really, I mean, you go to yeah. many of the major collections of dinosaurs, especially the classic connections like Tyrannosaurus and Triceratops, you know, uh, they all came from this place five miles from where I'm sitting right now called Morrison, Colorado. You may have heard of the Morrison Formation. Um, you could land a hundred robotic rovers in Morrison, Colorado. You'd never find a dinosaur bone in a century, even if you knew to land them in Morrison. Uh, and, the, the, uh, and now if you talk about going to Mars and now you don't want to just look for fossils, you want to get to the groundwater, which is where there still might be extant life on Mars in the underground water. Okay. Right. That's up a drilling rig. Drill down a kilometer. Bring up the water. Bring it to the hab. Subject to the biochemical examination. Try to culture it. This is so far beyond the ability of robotic rovers. So while I approve of robotic rovers, don't get me wrong, I, I'm a big fan, and, and the Mars Society had a significant role in helping to save the Curiosity mission, which was in danger of being cut because it was over budget. Humans could do so much more. Right, great. That's inspiring. So, I, I mean, and and this, there's another question, uh, sort of on the this sort of human inspirational kind of topic, which is the, what actually, what is it that makes Elon Musk or or anyone else to be motivated by the the sort of Greek Cleos idea? What is it that? Uh, creates those kind of people versus other kinds of motivations in society. Like in, I can imagine that, you know, maybe some of our education, maybe the, the ideals that we're exposed to, maybe the material conditions of how we live. What is it in your view that creates uh, people that are so strongly motivated uh, to, to kind of achieve great things as opposed to simply, uh, you know, being interested in, in, in money or luxury or, or all the various other things that... that well, um, I think it's the desire for immortality. Huh. Um, that's what eternal glory is, right? It's immortality. So what... Uh, immortal stars? glory. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's what motivated Homer's heroes. That's what motivates Musk. That's what motivates people who try to write the great American novel. Um, so why not everyone? They, 
so so it, it is it, it's a fundamental impulse and in this in the case of musk it's expressing it towards this goal yeah i, I i'm what i'm i guess what i'm getting at is like there's many people who i guess motivated by things that are not so obviously uh you know immortality through through sort of great deeds but but other things um or or not so clearly immortality at all but so what i i'm curious just like what is it what are the conditions that create kind of that productive drive as opposed to all the other things that 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 the drive gets turned into well uh, okay i'm i'm not exactly sure about that uh, but I will say that people who are not focused on some form of immortality, whether it's through great deeds or through children or uh, uh, something that's going to last, um, are um, mistaken. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, th there's a there's a question here that I think follows up. Take with you. <laughs> yeah. Like the, I think the thing is that the the thing where you know why do people get these desires right i think a lot of people uh, you were saying this earlier right examples you read about be it homer's heroes or the apollo missions or whatever there is this desire that is given by seeing others achieving great things and i, I see uh, avi here has asked something which i think is relevant um given that we had this first generation of space pioneers why did the example emulation mechanism fail in this case and are there like conditions necessary for like say that we have great examples you know uh, and, and you know, I, I can think here we were talking earlier about how the myth of space exploration was created before uh, even these missions were announced um, like does does there have to be this consciousness or living tradition that we know we should look to those people um, like what has to be in place for people to actually emulate the examples even when they are available well, look, uh, okay, the Apollo program, which did envision continuing, which did envision having a moon base by the late 70s and landing on Mars by 1981 and a Mars base by 1988, and th that was the plan. Okay, that was uh, 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 truncated. It was aborted by the Nixon administration. So we had an enormous failure of leadership uh, there. It was like, Columbus coming back from the New World the first time, and Ferdinand and Isabella saying, "Ah, so what? Get lost." Um, you know, who cares about this? Uh, right. But that was the response of Nixon and his gang. But there were those of us who grew up watching this, uh, who, you know, did have this vision and had a vision of it as being something significantly more important than a competition with the Soviets. Um, that this, you know, was indeed a great leap for mankind. How great leap of mankind is not the U.S. beating the Soviet Union to the moon. The great leap of mankind is humanity setting foot on another world. Okay, and that understood it in this context because we understood that which had motivated von Braun and Disney, not just JFK, uh, that there was a deeper vision here than the Cold War, and we were determined to carry it on. And, you know, people of my own generation were left carrying the torch and carrying that vision and whatever way we could, and we transmitted it. And it has now been, okay, transmitted more broadly in culture, of course, not just my books, but any number of, of, of science fiction. And, yeah, and that whole era of science fiction. And Star Trek and, you know, 
movies, uh, you know, I, I think there's now a broad appreciation that there was not yet in the 60s um, of a human future that is of a spacefaring humanity. Uh, and uh, that this is, is very much, or there's two competing visions. One is the Star Trek future, the other is the Soylent Green future. Um, right. And, uh, but, but then that makes it clear, which future do you want? And then a lot of people determined to make that. And I think that that more broadly, uh, that expression of the idea is what recruited Musk and Bezos and then things like the Mars Direct Plan has just made it clear that there was a way that this could be done in the here and now as opposed to further out. Um, but- Yeah, I, I think um, I'm looking at the other questions here as well. Uh, so just to let people know, I think you can in fact upvote questions if you particularly want to see them. Here's an interesting one uh, by Brian. Are planets or space habitats better for long-term human colonization? So I, I, you know, I remember seeing this in, uh, I, I think it was Interstellar near the end of that movie. You know, you, you get these, I, I forget the name of these habitats, but essentially artificial habitats. And I guess, you know, I, I don't really know the, what the answer there looks like on whether one even has the resources for these. But in terms of like the imagination around space, I think this is something that, it hasn't even really been suggested to be built yet. Um, do you think it's even worth trying to create sustainable colonies on a place like Mars rather than creating some kind of sustainable habitat artificially? Or, uh, you Certainly. know, logic? Uh, absolutely. Um, I think it's much easier to settle a planet than to build one. Um, you know, if you look at a, an O'Neill colony, uh, you're talking about like a billion tons of mass. Uh, you know, Mars direct mission to Mars is about 300 tons of mass. The worst NASA Mars mission plans I've ever seen have been maybe a thousand tons of mass. If you um, were to colonize Mars with, you know, a thousand starship launches, that'd be a hundred thousand tons of mass. Uh, uh, and you've got this planet there with trillions of tons of mass uh, waiting at, with the, the resources needed and, 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 and virtually unlimited compared to what you could launch and put in orbit. Now, if I did want to create uh, free-flying space colonies that weren't on Mars, I would put them inside of asteroids where at mm. least you've got a billion tons of mass right there. Okay, you want to have a free-flying colony, uh, uh, you know, you want to have your own space city away from everybody else, and that, that idea has some merit. Um, it does, actually, um, and I think people will do it someday, uh, because having the ability to have your own place where you can cut your own path and make your own world is a fundamental form of freedom. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we're going to colonize Mars before we do that. Mm -hmm. It sounds like, you know, uh, when the, the utility of these ideas is that they uh, create images for us of what we should pursue. So, you know, in, in here, the question of whether or not we should go to Mars, it has very near implications. You know, these are policies, these are decisions we can make now. Um, I see Stephen in the chat is mentioning, uh, which I think is a good point. A lot of our science fiction is kind of, you know, Star Trek, Star Wars, this kind of thing. It's about a galaxy in the far future, 
I guess Star Trek is a bit near, but you know, a lot of steps have been reached by the time that universe emerges. Do you think we need more science fiction that's focused on our solar system and like the next 50 to 100 years? I think we could use it. Um, you know, The Expanse uh, is, okay, that's more like 150 years or something like that. But it's still, it's not the interstellar empire. Uh, it's a solar system future. Uh, no, I, I think it would be very useful to have visions of 50 years, 100 years from now, uh, of things that are more within sight, things that we could create. Uh, you know, uh, in, in, in my book, This Case for Space, I, I talk about three levels of civilization. Okay. Um, and this is my own modification of an earlier scheme that was put forth by Nikolai Kardashev. Um, but I call a type one civilization, a civilization that has access to the resources of its planet. And we've more or less attained that now. Um, that is, we have not only become global in extent, which we've been for thousands of years, but interconnected globally, which we've been since about 1500 with the long distance sailing ship, but intimately interconnected globally, which we now are with the internet and with various international organizations and world trade organization and travel and all this. We're now truly a global civilization. Um, a type two civilization is one that has access to the resources of its solar system. So that is one that is a interplanetary spacefaring uh, civilization that has colonies on Mars, is colonizing the asteroids, is accessing the helium three resources, the outer solar system. Uh, and then there's type three, which is an interstellar that has access to the resources of its galaxy. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a fully developed interstellar. You know, Silikovsky said, you know, the earth is the cradle of mankind, but one cannot live in the cradle forever. Right. The solar system is the schoolyard. You leave the <laughs> cradle, you go into the schoolyard. Okay. Yeah. And it's there that you grow big enough that you can leave the schoolyard and go into the world at large. So, so it is within the context of a, a type two civilization that we will develop the capabilities that will allow us to become type three. So an interesting question on the, the, the planets versus habitats um, point is the question of terraforming versus pressurized habitats. Um, and, and I know you've advocated for some level of terraforming, though, of course, that that would take a while. It'd be a very large kind of project. But I, I'd be curious to hear on the feasibility of terraforming Mars, the ethics of terraforming Mars, um, and, and that general part of the question. What does it look okay, like? Okay, well, uh, terraforming Mars is a big project, okay? Yes. Uh, but I think we know how to do it. Um, the answer is global warming. We know right. how to do that. Um, you go for the nuclear bomb solution uh, on no, the... No, no, that won't work. Oh, really? uh, no, no, it, bombs are not going to do it. Um, greenhouse gases are the way to go. Um, we can produce extremely powerful greenhouse gases if we want to, um, like uh, uh, CF4, uh, perfluoromethane, is like a methane, but with fluorines instead of hydrogens. And um, it's thousands of times more powerful greenhouse agent than uh, carbon dioxide, for example. And if we were producing this stuff um, at 
about the same rate that we produce that general sort of compounds, fluorocarbons and chlorofluorocarbons on earth, which are produced commercially for refrigerants. Um, if we were to produce them on Mars, not to put in refrigerators, but to release into the atmosphere, uh, we could warm the planet by uh, 10 degrees in, in 50 years. And to put in perspective, in the past century and a half, that is since 1870, uh, when industrial civilization became strong enough to matter, um, we've warmed Earth by about one degree centigrade. Mm -hmm. um, so 10 degrees in 50 years, that would be a lot. And, um, and that would be enough to cause massive amounts of carbon dioxide to come out gassing out of the soil. And that would thicken the atmosphere. And of course, CO2 is also a, a greenhouse gas. And in those quantities, it'd be a very strong greenhouse gas. You'd warm Mars another 50 C. Uh, and then all the ice starts to melt, the permafrost starts to melt, the rivers on Mars start to flow again, you got rain. Uh, you could start spreading plants, that's how you do it. Uh, now, I think as technology advances, we'll probably come up with ways to accomplish this that make that description seem quaint, doing it with fluorocarbon factories and green plants, how 20th century can kind of like Jules Verne moon mission, you know, Crazy. launched from Florida. It was a crew of three. They were in a capsule. They orbited the moon. They landed in the Pacific Ocean and they were picked up by a United States Navy warship. All has actually happened 105 years later, except his motive power was heavy artillery. So 19th century mind grappling with a 20th century problem. He gets a lot of it right. Some of it's going to be wrong. Same thing with this. But I think we could do it. Uh, I think we'll, we'll, the fact that I can come up with a general scheme for how to do it proves that uh, an age in the future, which will only be uh, more technically uh, capable than anything I can dream of, um, will certainly be able to do it. Now, as far as the ethics are concerned, I think it'd be unethical not to do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, the, 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 how else is the community of life on earth going to spread to Mars unless we make it possible? You know, we, we uh, have, have attained uh, dominant access to the resources of our planet at the expense of many other species. Okay, so to those who much has been given, much is expected. And we're the vanguard of the community of life of Earth. And, right. you know, these people who say, and I don't get this at all, a people who call themselves environmentalists saying it would be wrong from an environmental ethics point of view to terraform Mars. Well, let me ask any environmentalist this question, or frankly, any developmentalist this question. I've got an idea. Let's take Earth with all of its forests and pine trees and rainforests and coral reefs and everything, and we'll make it a desert like Mars. How would you like that? Okay, we get rid of all the cities and the used bookstores and, 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 and you know, the farms and the wilderness areas and everything, and it can just be a nice red desert with maybe a few bacteria in the groundwater. Wouldn't that be swell? Say, you're nuts, okay? That would be insane from any point of view. That would just be just crazy, right? Okay, well, it would be the greatest environmental crime you could possibly imagine. Well, if, if, if transforming the living Earth into a dead Mars-like world is an enormous environmental crime, then transforming a dead Mars-like world into a living Earth has got to be the most positive act of environmental improvement anyone could propose. And so 
you know, if we can make the environment worse, we can make it better. It is, it is, is, is there, there's no logic to the point of view that says that anything we do is wrong. Right. Okay. Well, that, that's just that same loss of nerve that happened sort of around the last quarter of the 20th century that, that yeah. lost the space program and so on. Yeah. yeah well, and, or even the view that human activity is in fact beneficial uh, and can right. steward the cosmos. Right. Um, is, is, are, yeah. are, are humanity something grand that, that nature and has produced or are, are we the cancer on you? I, I think there's a good question. Uh, it's here in the Q and A and it's a good follow up. We're talking here about planets. There's a flip side to this, which is the effect on human beings. Cause obviously, you know, the, the environment of space and settling other worlds is going to be a tremendous, like the selection pressures there, we, we probably haven't understood them all yet, I would think. Um, you know, Avi here is asking, uh, you know, how will this change our experience of senses, time, perspective, curiosity, the flesh? Like, do, do you have some theories about what kind of human being will exist, you know, in, in this, perhaps in the next one, two, three hundred years, if we get to the stage of uh, interplanetary, of, of a civilization of the solar system? Well, certainly if we go elsewhere, we're going to diversify. And um, first we're going to diversify culturally and then eventually biologically. Um, but cultural diversification will happen much quicker. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a good thing. Um, you know, in biology, uh, the, uh, a type of, of animal, for example, has many diverse species. We consider it to be a strong genus or order of, of, of animals. If it's down to just one type, then it is on a narrow thread threatened with extinction. Okay, humanity, through electronic telecommunications, jet aircraft, and this general level of technology that we have today, it has made the earth a small place. And um, we're having cultural fusions. And there's a positive aspect to this for sure. Uh, of course, you know, you, well, once the epidemic ends, you'll be able to go to Chinese restaurants and Japanese restaurants and Italian restaurants mm. and, and all of this. And, 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 you know, you can play chess or you can play go and, 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 and there's all these different, uh, uh, cultures have something to offer, but there's a fusion going on. And, and, and so I, I think there's kind of an energy that's being released through the coming together of the earth's cultures. But once the potentials have been leveled, that energy has been released. We've lost that diversity and the power that it represents. And, but that same general level of technology represented by jet planes and electronic communications speaking generically, it gives you the capability of becoming an interplanetary species. And uh, so while the Earth may become small, we now have a much larger theater of operations, which will be big. And there'll be new cultures created in new places. And um, now I'm very hopeful that um, uh, at least some of these cultures uh, are going to be more supportive of the development of human potential and human freedom than anything we have on earth. Um, I think there's a reason why it's because if they are, then people will want to go there. Uh, and uh, 
Well, and they'll accomplish more. They'll accomplish more. They will be more successful. They will grow. They will become examples to others. And, you know, the noble experiment, as Thomas Jefferson called it, of the United States has been in one respect or another emulated positively in most of the world. It has become the standard that there should be equal rights under the law for people of it's imperfectly followed. If you're richer, you have a better shake with the law than if you're poor, but we do not have, you know, uh, uh, blood aristocracy and, 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 and different legal standards for different kinds of people. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and anyway, but the, the, but I think a, a Mars colony, uh, the most successful ones will be ones that are, are the most inviting in this respect. And also, um, greater freedom means greater innovation. Uh, and the Mars colony is going to have to innovate, both in order to address its own problems of, you know, for instance, realizing adequate agricultural yield within greenhouse agriculture, which is much limited in acreage, and so forth, and developing robotics and artificial intelligence in order to have a greater diversity of skills and labor power that is available from a limited population and so forth. And, 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 and by de developing technologies, it'll have something to export, i.e. patents, um, which should be a source of income, just to give you an idea. Uh, now, there are people who say extraterrestrial colonies will be tyrannies because the government can shut off your air supply if it wants to. But I think the opposite. Uh, I think on, on Earth that the, um, the easiest people to oppress actually are nominally self-sufficient peasants because none of them are essential. Uh, city populations, uh, urban civilizations, in particular people, their individual skills are, are, are more important. Um, they, um, you know, if a narrow group of workers goes on strike, they can cripple the whole economy. But, so they, they have to be more respected than a peasant village. Just tyrant, tyrant could just wipe it out. What's the loss? But that's uh, a very... That's a very interesting idea, the idea that as people sort of uh, pick up more important functional roles within the system, it, it becomes uh, much more important to treat them well. That's right. And in a space colony, one person could wreck the whole colony. So you better treat everybody well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so uh, I, I, I believe there will be extraterrestrial liberty. Uh, I also believe that there will be um, diversity because... I think there's always going to be people that have a different idea of how society should be organized. In general, they're not going to be popular uh, among everybody else. And, you know, if, if you look at the most uh, remarkable colonization efforts that have occurred over the past 400 years, which I would say are the pilgrims going to Massachusetts, the Mormons going to Utah, and the Jews going to Palestine, um, they're all done for transcendent reasons. They mm. were all done in defiance of an easier path to prosperity. Um, um, the, 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 you know, the Mormons, why stop off in, in Salt Lake when you could have gone to California or Oregon with a much nicer uh, land and, and water and, and, you know, more fertile? Well, it's because no one else is going to want to come here. <laughs> uh, yeah. So here we can make our own world. And you could say the same thing for the other two groups that I mentioned. And um, they're both, they're, all three are motivated actually by religious um, and associated cultural uh, transcendent uh, motivations as opposed to commercial motivations. 
And I think there'll be people like this in the future who want to have their own place. And if they're right that their ideas are better, then their colonies will grow and prosper uh, and become examples. If they're wrong, it'll simply disappear. So I, I think we're going to have a great diversity of cultures. Now, of course, diversity of environments will lead to biological diversity. Human beings are what they are because, and, and all other animals, because they are well adapted to these conditions. Uh, if you change the gravity field, for example, uh, um, the design optimization will change. Um, and, and that'll have effects on biological evolution. Um, and particularly if we're moving into an era where people are capable of controlling to one extent or another biological evolution. Right. Um, and also, I think, for instance, if you take this question of genetic engineering, uh, and not just of crops and such, but even of, of people, um, now there are a lot of people think that's wrong and their societies won't practice it. But there might be people who think it's right and they'll go off to a place where they can practice it. And that will accelerate the diversification of humanity. So, you know, if you, you know, if you look at like Star Trek and they have conventions of different species of aliens, but they all kind of look like humans, except some have pointy ears or blue skin or something. Uh, that's very unlikely if these were actually extraterrestrials that originated biologically from a, a separate origin. But if we think of humanity traveling out to the stars and different cultures evolving with different aesthetics, um, and some might like blue skin, it might become the fashion. Um, and so they'll all have blue skin. And, and then when you meet them, you'll meet humanoids with blue skin. But they didn't evolve on Alpha Centauri. They they were human colonists who, who, yeah, who changed. The roots are here. Yeah. 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 So, so we're reaching, uh, I think, the end of our time here. Yeah. I, I think there's one more question that would be good to close on here. Um, oh, I, I had a, a good idea one. for one. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, let me, let, I, this is a quick answer. So let's do okay. both and cheat. Go for it, um, <laughs> We're looking at very large scale, big picture stuff now. To achieve any of this, we need to create the mechanisms. So the question here, uh, ultimately, do you consider NASA bureaucratically salvageable or do we need to just give Elon a trillion dollars and say go for it or some other option? Um, I think that's how this is going to come down. Okay. Musk is moving ahead. Um, and assuming that he doesn't skate off the edge of the ice, which could happen, he is a risk taker. But if he doesn't, okay. He says he's going to have Starship flying to orbit this year. I don't think so. I think he might have it next year. I think he'll certainly have it by 2024. And if Starships, are, which are launch vehicles with the capability of a Saturn V moon rocket, but fully reusable, equal capability, less than a tenth the cost, if those things are flying to orbit by 2024, when we elect a new president, that person, he or she is going to look at their advisors and say, look at this. With that, could we have people on Mars by the end of my second term? The answer is going to be yes. Will it cost hundreds of billions of dollars? Oh, certainly not. Tens of billions of dollars? Well, maybe $10 billion. Well, then what are we waiting for? And at that point, by making it feasible, Musk will have made it sellable. And the U.S. government will be in. And then you'll have a president saying, I want to be on Mars by the end of my second term. NASA, I want you to get with the program. Okay. I want to meet Musk halfway. 
Okay, he's got the rockets. Let's develop the space nuclear reactor because he can't get his hands on uranium-235. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be made in order to colonize Mars. And mm. it, it'd be really a lot to expect Musk to do it all. But he's knocking down the biggest tall poles. I think we'll meet him halfway. And, and, and at that point, with that kind of pressure from the top, get with the program. Let's get together with Musk. And I want this done before the end of my second term. So don't come up with all sorts of stupid projects like we have to build a Venus orbiting space station before we go to Mars or some other ridiculous thing. Let's just do this. Um, it'll be done. So I think we're going to be on Mars by uh, 2030. And I think it's going to be a public private okay, partnership. Bold. Okay. Great. Yeah. Great. I, I have another question on this bold vision sort of uh, line of questioning which is, is in, in the context of the goal to achieve a type two civilization, what fraction of sunlight should we aim to capture in the next 250 years? Well, this is where I differ from Kardashev. Kardashev defined a type two civilization as one that captures all the energy of the sun. Right. I, I think that's ridiculous. Uh, I, so I do not regard a type, define a type two civilization as one that captures the energy of its star. I think it's one that has access to the resources of its solar system. Uh, right. So I think we'll make a lot of use of solar energy. Uh, I think we'll make a lot of use of fusion energy. We're right. gonna make our own suns, Right. okay? Okay, you know, our ancestors turned dirt into metal. We're gonna turn water into light. Great, grand vision. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been yeah. a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Robert, for coming on. It's been it's been a pleasure to have you yeah, and hear you ranting blast. about, Thank you. about uh, the most glorious things we could be doing. Uh, all right. Looking well, forward to actually doing it all. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining as well. We can get to everyone's questions as usual, but I think it was an engaging discussion. So we'll see you next time. All right. Thanks a lot.